Blog Talk Radio. and Sportsbeat Radio, this is Sportsbeat, a provocative, insightful, informative, and educational show that we hope will educate the sports listeners to the specific of sport. With interviews, analysis, and a comprehensive look at the topics we feel will be appealing to the sports listener, and with that said, we're not just your average call-in, same subject, same question over and over radio, but we like to think of ourselves as informative and educational radio. So why not sit back, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we hope you'll find the program informative, educational, and above all, enjoyable. And with that said and done, this is Sportsbeat, and we're coming at you live. And I'm your host, John Spooler. So everybody, welcome to this Tuesday program, the 7th day of March 2023. Thanks so much for joining us on yet another segment of Sports Beat Radio, Talking Sports. And today we're going to be talking uh, part two about how the NFL teams uh, receive their names. Now, we already went through, if you weren't sure, uh, some of the teams uh, from uh, earlier. We didn't have enough time to get through all of them, and so we'll pick up uh, where we left off. Uh, We talked about the Packers and I believe the Lions and uh, we're going to take a look. But we wanted to do a uh, new segment on the show called uh, Your Questions. And we had a couple of questions. We get questions all the time from around the world. Sportsbeat Radio is heard in about 15 countries, not just America and Canada. And uh, I wanted to start the show by uh, taking a couple of the questions. One person wrote from Alexandria, uh Egypt, believe it or not. I didn't know that uh, they knew a lot about football, but football is, of course, with all of the uh, worldwide NFL games becoming more and more worldly. And he wrote this. His name was Abdul, and he writes, Who decides on the uniforms worn for the games? Now, you know, in the old days, we had... Home and away jerseys. You know, you had your dark color at home. You had your white color on the road. Some teams in the NFL, like Cleveland, the Browns, the Rams when they were out in L.A. for the first time, uh, and the Dallas Cowboys, and the Cowboys still uh, wear their white jerseys, both on the road and at home. And so the answer to that question is the captain actually decides. The captain is – a position on the team. It's kind of the mother hen. They take care of uh, the players and also the uh, problems and everything else. But the captain decides as to what color uniform. Uh, in the NFL, you have to give notice. I believe in all four leagues, you have to give notice to what you're wearing so that the other team uh, knows. And you also have to send notification to that team what color you'll be wearing. Sometimes teams wear white at home. Miami does, particularly in the early part of the season when it's still humid and hot down there. And white kind of reflects the heat rather than the aqua jerseys. You know, it was interesting. Back in the 70s, 
there was an interesting game between, in the NBA, the San Antonio Spurs and the Washington Bullets. Before they were the Wizards, they were the Bullets. Abe Paul and the owner of the Bullets thought that Bullets was uh, necessitated violence, so he changed the name to Wizards when he owned the team. But there was a game there where the Spurs were the visiting team. The game was played in Washington, and somebody had broken into the locker room uh, somehow of the Spurs and stole all the uniforms as well as the warm-ups, and the Spurs had no uniforms. Now, today that wouldn't have been a problem because you know, most of the teams have you know a ton of uniforms, particularly in the NBA. I think every team has probably about eight jerseys that they wear. But in those days it was, uh, you know, road uh white and dark home and what happened was the bullets this this happened uh, when somewhere over uh, over the evening and so the bullets loaned their uniforms to the San Antonio Spurs and they wore them inside out it was kind of a you can see that game on YouTube kind of a bizarre situation and so ever since that game all teams have brought all uniforms now uniforms are are sent today by uh, Nike in uh, the NBA and the uh, NFL. They send as many as they need uh, because they have a contract. The contract lasts for five years. Reebok had it at one point. Nike has it now. Uh, In four years or so, uh, the license will go to someone else. But the captain decides what uniform uh, to wear. The other question comes, believe it or not, from – outside of Dublin, Ireland. And the person's name is Franz, and Franz asks a question about, as far as, let's see, where is the Here it is. It's the question uh, Franz asked from uh, right, right outside of Dublin, out in the outskirts of Dublin. Uh, he asked the question about, will there be, I had just misplaced the question here, will there be, uh, a time when football is universal. And, you know, they had, uh, believe, the Scottish Claymores at one time, uh, the Berlin Thunder, the Barcelona Dragons. Those of you who remember the Euro League back in the 90s, you know, this was all because uh, they want to expand it to a worldly game. Probably within the next 10 years, it'll be a game that most of us who are conservatively brought up in football from the 60s and 70s won't recognize. We're already not recognizing baseball with the pitch clock and everything else that's going on with it. But I think the game will be universal, and the reason why is because of all the games that are played around the world. You know, we see the the games played in uh, London. The Jaguars uh, have been there many times. Shad Khan, the owner, is... uh, uh, has ties to England. He has a soccer team there, and uh, they could be the first team to vote for London. Uh, we've seen games in Mexico City. We've seen games in uh, Tokyo. We've seen games last year in Germany, and that's going to continue. And so they don't just do it for show. They do it because they intend to, to expand. And uh, we'll see how that goes because now the Players Association has a lot to say about owners. In the old days, they did not. The reserve clause kept players from really being able to do anything, but now in collective bargaining and free agency and everything else, the players, uh, will they go for it? Well, anytime there's money involved, I think you're going to see the players go for it. It doesn't matter if they spend all day in an airplane. Most people think they won't go for it. I mean, you know, if there's a game in uh, Germany 
uh, in Berlin, let's say, uh, against the uh, San Francisco 49ers, uh, you're talking a heck of a flight. Time changes and everything else, but, you know, money bastardizes people. So it's to me, I think you're going to see it. So getting back to our show today, uh, the how the, the NFL teams got their names. And we wanted to start, for those of you who uh, didn't hear, the first podcast is uh, out with the first section of uh, teams. But So we'll start where we left off, and that is with the Lions. And so the team began in 1930 as the Portsmouth Spartans. That was when the city of Portsmouth completed their new football stadium. The NFL offered a franchise, and at the time, Portsmouth was the second smallest city right behind Green Bay. And so the second uh, season, Portsmouth would tie the Bears for the league's best record at 9-0. and and then uh, they, uh, Chicago, uh, they went uh, nine and uh, lost. Excuse me, nine to zero to Chicago in the NFL's first playoff games. So the Great Depression really decimated the team's future. In 1934, a group led by George Richards purchased the club for $7,900. Believe it or not, relocated it to Detroit, and they became the Lions to go along with baseball's Tigers. So he would comment. Uh, that is uh, George Richards, the owner. He would comment that the lion was the monarch of the jungle, and he intended to hint his team to become the monarch of the NFL. Unfortunately for fans, the club entered two winless seasons, 0-11-0 in 1942, and then back in 2008 they were 0-16. Uh, the original city owner was the city of Portsmouth, Ohio. They actually were in Ohio. They wore purple and white as their colors. Universal Stadium held uh, 8,200, and the retired jerseys, Earl Clark, Lem Barney, Billy Sims, Doak Walker, Barry Sanders, of course we remember him, Bobby Lane, Charlie Sanders, Chuck Hughes, and the great uh, middle linebacker, Joe Schmidt, uh, number 56. So we move on to the Broncos, and they were in financial trouble from the start, beginning their inaugural year as a charter member of the AFL. Bob Housen, who was the original owner, was limited financially. He had owned a minor league baseball team called the Denver Bears in 1958, inquired about the uh, NFL team, but was told expansion was years away. So when he bought uh, the AFL franchise, Housen made every shortcut he could possibly make, and so he purchased uniforms from the extinct Copper Bowl. That was a game that was played in Arizona. Uh, one part of the uniforms were vertical striped socks, which has become one of the team's most memorable early years attributes. I believe we have that on our slideshow. And in 63, the team hired Jack Faulkner as their head coach, and his first decision was to change the team colors from brown and gold to today's orange, blue and white. And the second order of business, interestingly enough, was a public sock burning ceremony. Uh, Faulkner did keep two pairs for whatever reason, and today one pair can be viewed at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can see them, I believe, too, on our uh, slideshow. So in 65, believe it or not, the club came close to relocating to Atlanta, but a local ownership group by Gerald and Alan Phipps put together a package and kept the team in Denver. Fan support subsequently increased from about 8,000 uh, season ticket holders to almost 23,000. And the team name contest was held in 1960. Broncos were the most submitted partly because of the popularity of minor league baseball team in the 1920s. So they were established in 1960. Bob Housem, the original owner, brown and gold were their original colors. 
Bears Stadium, which became Mile High Stadium, held uh, capacity in the first stadium of 51,706. The retired jerseys, of course, John Elway, the great Frank Trapuca, and the great running back Floyd Little, number 44. Uh, we also talked about, I believe, the Cowboys, uh, the Cleveland Browns we mentioned, and uh, the Cincinnati Bengals I think we mentioned on our uh, other podcast. And so we wanted to talk about the Chicago Bears. And this is a team certainly that is one of the true charter members of the uh, National Football League going back before 1920. And uh, one of the NFL's most storied clubs, the team began as a company football team, and George Hallis, he was an exceptional athlete at the University of Illinois where he excelled in baseball and football. He was named the Rose Bowl MVP. And after a, a stint in World War I, he played minor league baseball, eventually landed on the Yankees, and a hip injury ended his uh, baseball career. So in 1919, he accepted a civil engineering job in the bridge department of the railroad. And on weekends, he played for the Hammond Pros, an independent football team. This was before the uh, start of the NFL in 1920. A spectator at one game was a man by the name of Augustus Staley, who owned a starch factory in Decatur, Illinois. And Staley had a company baseball and basketball team he used for mainly advertising purposes. So he wanted to start a football team and offered Hallis the position with the A.E. Staley Company. And his duties would be learned, learning the starch business, become the athletic director of the company, and play on the company teams. And he went back to the railroad, this is Hallis, and thought about whether he would be happy sitting behind a desk for 25 years. So he, he accepted Staley's offer. And the Staley's were a good team right from the beginning. Hallis was strict and had the advantage that most other teams didn't have, job opportunities. And the Starch Company could offer the better players a job while they played for the company team. In the first season, the Staley's finished in second place. So then the following year, Augustus Staley began to downsize his athletic endeavors. He offered Hallis 5000 to continue for one more season with the stipulation that the Staley's nickname would continue for advertising purposes, but suggested relocation to a larger city in order to draw bigger crowds. So Hallis uh, chose nearby Chicago. And so the Chicago Staley's were able to lease Wrigley Field, that was home of the Cubs, and capture the 1921 title. And 22 after affiliation with Staley was completed, Hallis renamed his team the Chicago Cubs in hopes that fans would support both sports. And upon consideration, he noted that football players were bigger in their baseball counterpart counterparts. So if baseball players were Cubs, then football players, well, they must be Bears. And so the Bears have been one of the NFL's most successful franchises over the decades. Hallis, if you remember from history, signed Greg Grange out of the University of Illinois in 1925, who became a sensation, the first real star in the NFL. Played to overflowing crowds, waited wherever the Bears played, and a game in New York was responsible for saving the Giants franchise, really from financial ruin. That's when they used to do uh, the barnstorming. So Hallis, who coached uh, for well over 40 years, the Bears was the owner, uh, served the Bears as an owner, player, coach, general manager, traveling secretary, and virtually every other capacity imaginable with the Bears. He passed away on October 31st, 1983. He's known as the father of the NFL. So the Bears uh, came to fruition in 1920, although they played before then as the Staley's. A.E. Staley was the original owner. Black and white were their original colors. Staley Field, uh, which was basically a park, the seating capacity was zero. But the retired jerseys, Bronco Nagurski, George McAfee, 
George Hallis, Sid Luckman, Bulldog Turner, Willie Gallimore, Red Grange, Bill Hewitt End, Bill George, Brian Piccolo, Walter Payton, the great Gail Sayers, the great Dick Butkus, all retired jerseys for the Bears. The Panthers, well, the Panthers, uh, Richardson's son, who was, uh, Richardson was the uh, original owner of the Panthers in 1987, Jerry Richardson, uh, he submitted interest in obtaining an NFL uh, expansion franchise. The NFL had announced that the league would expand to two more teams, and Richardson wanted to be part of the front line. So the stadium site was then selected in 89. Richardson unveiled plans for a privately funded venue in uptown Charlotte. So Richardson's son, Mark, uh, is responsible for the selection of the team named Panthers. Mark felt that there should be some synergy between the name and the team colors and also suggested the team colors of black, blue, and silver. And so established in 1995, Jerry Richardson, the original owner, black, blue, silver, and white were the colors. Memorial Stadium, first stadium, 80,301, and retired jersey, Sam Mills, number 51. The Buffalo Bills, uh, city of Buffalo has a long history of pro football with several different teams before the formation of the NFL, most notably the Niagara's. The Buffalo All-Americans joined the NFL's first season in 1920 and competed until 23 when the team went through two other nickname changes. So the, in 46, the city held a franchise in a newly formed AAFC. The team was called the Bisons. And in the first season, but then changed to the Bills for the other three years, the club did very well on the field and was widely supported at the gate. But when the AAFC merged in the NFL in 1950, three clubs were admitted. Buffalo, however, was not one of them. So the city was uh, somewhat livid. So Buffalo was one of the first franchises named in the AFL. Ralph Wilson was quite wealthy and had attempted to purchase an NFL expansion team, but like the rest, was repeatedly turned down because of the success of the AAFC Bills. It was a natural fusion with the newer rendition. The nickname originally came from the fabled Wild West show, William Buffalo Bill Cody. So they were established as a charter member in 1960 in the AFL. Ralph Wilson, the Wilson family, still owns the team. He was the original owner. Royal Blue, Red and White, War Memorial Stadium. How many games have we saw from there on NBC way back in the 60s? Holding 46,500 and retired numbers, Jim Kelly, number 12. The Ravens, uh, well, of course, uh, we know what happened. Robert Ursay wanted a better stadium, who owned the uh, Colts and uh, stadium deal. 72, a proposal was presented to build a magnificent stadium complex located next to Camden Yards, including a stadium called the Baltop Dome. But the proposal did not receive enough support to pass the Maryland legislature, to which then-Governor Marvin Mandel axed the project altogether. So Ursay approached other cities, Jacksonville, India, and Indianapolis, Birmingham, Memphis, New York, and Phoenix, and he asked the league vote to approve any such move. The owners, fresh off the Raiders debacle, didn't vote yes or no. They simply stated that the Colts' possible move wasn't a league matter, but rather a team matter. So the city of Baltimore was suddenly without pro football. The Colts left Baltimore for Indianapolis in 84. And then there were legal actions that were filed against Art Modell and the Browns. Eventually, Cleveland accepted a legal settlement from the NFL, and the conditions of the settlement were exclusive to the situation. The Browns' nickname, colors, player history awards, records, logos, achievements, and even team history 
would not accompany Modell to Baltimore, but would remain in Cleveland. So the team name contest was held. Baltimore management poured through the entries and came up with a list of 17. And from there, it was narrowed down to six and then three, Americans, Ravens, and Marauders. And the last step was for the fans to vote in the final three entries from 33,288 voters. Ravens won out in order to honor author Edgar Allan Poe, who lived and is buried in Baltimore. So they started in 96. Art Modell, the owner, purple, black, gold, and white. Memorial Stadium, first stadium, 53,375. At this point, no jerseys have been uh, retired. The Falcons, a team that exists simply because of the rival AFL. So when NFL Commissioner Pete Rozelle heard that the new league was going to set up shop in Atlanta, he booked the next flight and forced the group to decide between the AFL or the NFL's expansion team, and the established league won out. So in 1989, uh, the Falcons drafted one of the best cornerbacks in NFL history, Deion Sanders. And in a name the team context, 558 separate nicknames were submitted. Several suggested Falcons, but the name uh, entry of school teacher Juliet Elliott was chosen with her summation that the Falcon is a proud and dignified bird with great courage and flight. And so Falcons became the name. 1966 was their establishment. Rankin Smith, the owner. Red, black, and white were the colors. Atlanta Stadium, the first stadium, 60,606. Among the retired uh, jerseys, Tommy Nobis, number 60. We know about him on defense. Claude Humphrey, Jeff Van Note, Steve Barkowski, Mike Ken, William Andrews, and Jesse Tuggle. The Arizona Cardinals are an NFL charter member and the oldest continuous professional football team in existence, dating way back to 18. 98. They began known as the Racine Normals after playing their home games at a football field on Racine Street near Normal Boulevard. And in 1901, team owner Chris O'Brien got an exceptional deal on some used red football uniforms from the University of Chicago. And when the uniforms arrived upon unloading the jerseys, the team manager commented that the jerseys were faded red, to which O'Brien exclaimed that they weren't faded red, but indeed cardinal red. That's what he said. So after that, the club was known as the Racine Cardinals, which the nickname was originally about the color rather than the bird. And the team became champions of the Chicago Football League in 1917, some three years before the formation of the, the National Football League. And in September of 1920, O'Brien's Racine Cardinals joined the newly formed American Professional Football Association, the APFA, which is what it was known for later in 1922 to be renamed the NFL, for an entry fee of $100. So the Cardinals moved uh, from Chicago. They were the Chicago Cardinals, a very tough team. They played in that 1948 uh, snow game against the uh, Eagles, Steve Van Buren and uh, Alex Wojciechowicz for the Eagles. Uh, and uh, they uh, would move to St. Louis. They became the Cardinals in 88. The club relocated to Tempe, Arizona, were christened the Phoenix Cardinals. 94, the franchise endured another name change, the Arizona Cardinals. Currently, the team plays and is headquartered in Glendale. So the uh, establishment was 1898. Chris O'Brien was the owner, original, Cardinal Red and White. Normal Park was basically just a, a park, uh, seating 6,000 retired jerseys. Pat Tillman, uh, J.V. Kane, Larry Wilson, Stan Malden, and Marshall Goldberg. 
And that is uh, actually a look. So after the merger between the AFL and the NFL was agreed upon and announced in 1966, there were several items dangling that needed to be addressed, one of which would be how the conferences and divisions would be structured. And even though the leagues would meld into one, there was still quite a bit of animosity among AFL and NFL owners toward each other. And this is understandable since each had attempted to destroy the other for years. And at the time, the NFL comprised 16 teams, while the AFL had 10. So at the 69 owners' meeting, NFL Commissioner Roselle announced that the two conferences would be called American Football Conference, the AFC, and the National Football Conference, the NFC. And as, a, and as an aside, the AFC would consist of 10 AFL teams, while the NFL, NFC excuse me, would contain the 16 NFL clubs. So the AFL owners were livid especially Bengals owner Paul Brown and Raiders, of course, owner Al Davis, who was always feuding with Roselle. Before the meeting was adjourned, Roselle relented and said that both conferences would somehow contain 13 teams. So this meant one thing. Three NFL clubs would have to join up with the AFL and a newly formed AFC. And at the next owner's meeting, Roselle stated that any club that switched would receive a one-time stipend of $3 million if they agreed to join the AFC, and it was mutually decided that the Packers, Bears, Cowboys, and Giants would not be part of the jump, but every other team was open. So Roselle kept the owners together for 30 hours until finally Colts owner Carol Rosenblum, who would later, I believe, own the uh, L.A. Rams, uh, he relented, and Brown's owner, Art Modell, then stated he would go to the AFC, but only if his friend Art Rooney of the Steelers would join him. So ironically, the first, uh, the very first Super Bowl after the merger pitted the Colts against the Cowboys, two former NFL teams. You know, it was interesting to me, uh, I always remember Art Modell, uh, you know, the uh, uh, John Elway, always had the Cleveland Browns. This is the original Cleveland Browns before they moved to Baltimore. They always had his number. You know, they, uh, the, the drive, if you remember, with only uh, minutes to go, and Elway t- takes it from the Denver 2 and hits Mark Jackson where uh, in the deep in the end zone. The ball is probably two feet off the ground, and they pan in on a hard model. I always remember his face. And then the uh, Ernest Biner fumble the following year in Denver at Mile High Stadium. Uh, once again, uh, the Denver Broncos do in uh, Marty Schottenheimer and uh, Art Modell's face. I, I, it's always etched in stone to me. Uh, nobody, no owner took it tougher than Art Modell. You know, they, they had those two championships won, but, you know, the game is played for four quarters and you've got to be great for all of the minutes in those quarters and you know Elway was a master he was like Roger Staubach coming back that was one of the great drives of all time from the Denver 2 all the way in and I remember uh, hearing a story that uh, one of the linemen said to Elway when they were at the two-yard line with minutes to go uh, he said I don't know if we can do this and Elway said if you don't think we can do it get the hell out of here get somebody in here that believes we're going to do it because we're going down the field, and that's certainly what they did. And, of course, the unfortunate situation with Ernest Biner's fumble and uh, the Denver Broncos uh, defeat the Cleveland uh, Browns again. So, you know, it is a good old boys club, 
And, uh, you know, Pete Rozelle, I thought, was the greatest commissioner of all time. He was really responsible for uh, giving a real shot in the arm to uh, the National Football League. Before him, uh, they, most uh, the owners thought he was this wimpy guy that they could push around, and he became one of the stalwarts, really, of sports. Uh, you know, negotiating uh, the TV contracts, making money, uh, getting the apparel uh, endorsed uh, that teams could sell their uh, logo and equipment and so forth, uh, jerseys and sweatshirts with the uh, logo. And he was really very, very instrumental in giving a real kick to the National Football League, which was not popular really before 1958 in the uh, Colts championship against the uh, New York Giants at the uh, Yankee Stadium back in 58, that was the game that really turned everything around. And when uh, Roselle became the commissioner, uh, he really gave a shot in the arm to the NFL. And I think the NFL owes him a great uh, debt of gratitude for being able to promote the NFL into what it is today. We don't hear much about Pete Roselle, but he was also uh, a no-nonsense guy. So there you have a look at the uh, teams. You can go back and take a look at the um, – situation with our first uh, podcast where we uh, told you the team names of uh, other uh, NFL teams. Hopefully that was a, a learning experience for you. Well, that'll about do it for our show today. Thanks so much for joining us on this segment of Sports Beat Radio Talk and Sports. The NBA now down to about 15 more games before the playoffs. Uh, the National Hockey League, a few more weeks of games before the playoffs. Of course, we have the XFL now in its third week. Some very exciting games if you didn't see it. And next month, uh, toward the end of the month in April, we'll have the kickoff of the second year of the United States Football League. Of course, baseball still in the Grapefruit League. Uh, we'll see how everybody does with the pitch clocks and the bigger bags and so forth. Sports Beat's been a presentation of Sports Beat Radio. Until next time, all of you have a great day and great sports. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, everybody. Thanks for joining us.